First Peter chapter 4. We are approaching the end of this magnificent book. A book that I trust is keeping our eyes fixed on heaven, on eternal things, on God and his purposes. And as we do every week, I want to encourage us to not come to this word with familiarity or apathy or the assumption that our life is not meant to change based on our encounter with this particular section of Scripture. One of the things I do every week before I begin the preparation is to to reread the second half of Psalm 19, which talks about God's Word and the promises that God's Word contains, that it will revive the soul, that it will bring wisdom to the simple, that it will enlighten the eyes. And because God has said that about His Word, I believe, and I believe we should have faith that He is doing that every week, that every week some part of our soul is being enlightened, some part of our life is being revived, some simplicity, simple-mindedness of life is being given wisdom. And so let's come to this Word with that kind of expectation this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Well, before one of my children was born, um, I remember going to the hospital. I believe it was for one of those classes that they provide to try to prepare you uh, for childbirth. And I remember a particular piece of birthing literature that had just stood out in my mind. It was, it was something of a pain expectation scale. And I think it was designed to apparently help, help women uh, identify what their preferred pain expectation was. <laughs> uh, I have four children, so it struck me as a little more humorous now than it did then. Uh, at the bottom of the scale was a hypothetical quote uh, from a mother indicating that she had an aversion to pain, that that was her level 
of pain expectation when it came to labor. It, it had some kind of indication of, of very little or no pain, if possible. And I was amused. It had little paragraphs next to it to describe how they would handle this level of expectation. And next to that expectation, aversion to pain, it simply said, if I remember correctly, this is an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> uh, I looked up to try to remember, if I was remembering correctly, I, I found a similar chart uh, by physical therapist Penny Simpkin. She, she quoted this extreme as, I want to be numb, to get anesthesia before labor begins. <laughs> and then she has a description that says, an impossible extreme. <laughs> I can only imagine nurses and doctors and various midwives and so forth who've had to over the years respond to that request. I, I would like zero pain, please. I would like a, a child, but, but no pain. That would be my desire, my expectation. That's my level of <laughs> pain preparation. Well, all of us actually, if we're honest with ourselves, can identify with that. And actually, compared to what a woman goes through in labor, uh, we have nothing to say because all of us might prefer that even with much lesser levels of pain. I prefer no pain. That would be my level of life pain expectation. How about none? How about zero pain? I have an aversion to pain. I like what Simpkin says. I want to be numb. I would like anesthesia before anything happens negative to me. Well, Peter, Peter comes to us as a wise, gentle father of the faith, and he says, this is not a realistic expectation. Beloved, he says. I love that opening word in verse 12. Beloved reminds us of his, his love for his readers. Beloved. You can almost picture a, a father coming to someone who has this expectation. I would like no pain. And how does he begin this very difficult speech that he's going to have to give? Beloved, he says. Beloved. He comes to us not because he wishes pain, but because he knows that pain is necessary. Suffering is inevitable. The Christian will suffer, Peter says. You cannot have the expectation of the absence of pain. You will not be numb. You will feel this, Peter says. And he comes to them to prepare them. He wants them to be prepared. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. Though pain is inevitable, surprise at pain is unnecessary, even ungodly. So Peter comes to them to say, be prepared. Be prepared to suffer joyfully for Christ. Suffering joyfully for Christ, Peter's going to say, does something incredible. It reveals that we belong to Christ. Be prepared, Peter says. No pain is not a realistic expectation for the Christian. The non-suffering Christian life does not exist, Peter would say. But you can be prepared to engage that suffering in a godly way. So I would summarize this whole paragraph. Be prepared to suffer joyfully for Christ. 
I'm going to break this paragraph into three sections. The first one is a a grouping of commands about how we are to relate to suffering. I'll label that our joy in suffering. The next two sections are shorter, but they, they could be labeled our test in suffering. And finally, our trust in suffering. Our joy in suffering, our test in suffering, and our trust in suffering. Let's look at this opening grouping of commands. Peter brings them rapid fire to the church following his greeting. Beloved, he says, and here's the first command, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Part of how we can have joy and faithfulness in suffering is by expecting it. It actually is a command that Peter brings to the church. Do not be surprised. So this is the the opposite of what the spouse tells their spouse when they've agreed together to buy something for each other for Christmas. And they say, now be surprised. Peter's saying the opposite. Do not be surprised. Now this is a hard command to obey. But he's saying, you need to get it in your mind right now that a fiery trial will come upon you and you are not allowed to be surprised by it. It doesn't mean that you know the exact day or that you have it in your calendar. It just means that when it comes, there is something in your mind that says, yes, I knew this was coming. I was expecting this to come. I knew this would happen. I remember having a, a friend who didn't understand about the need for changing the oil in the car. Now, I don't know very much about cars, but I do know the oil has to be changed. This friend did not know that. And he went for actually a miraculous number of miles with his car still operating until the day came when it did not operate anymore because it had not had the oil changed for tens of thousands of miles. Well, the Christian is not to be like that friend. They're not to go through life ignorant that suffering will come and surprised when the car breaks down on the highway. They're to expect suffering to come into their lives. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He'll explain the nature of that test in a bit. But you can think again of what he said at the beginning of this book where he says... Suffering, it has this testing value for the Christian. It, it purifies the Christian and reveals who they actually are. It strips them of their worldly exterior and exposes the genuineness of their faith in Christ. It is a fiery trial. And you are not to think this is strange when it happens. Do not be surprised. Do not think it's strange. Here's Peter's command. Now, Christians, this is a hard command to obey. We tend to think when we suffer because we are Christians, this is unusual. This is extraordinary. This is crazy. Why is this happening to me? I must be unique. Peter says explicitly, do not think it strange. Let's just press this opening command into our hearts. Do we think it is strange or weird when the path of obedience leads to suffering? Do we actually assume that God does not want his people to ever suffer as long as they are obedient? Some teaching in this country especially would indicate that if you obey God, you will experience physical blessing in this world. 
You can imagine a preacher saying, look, if you have faith, if you obey God, you will experience blessing. You will be in the circle of God's blessing. But we need to take that thought and line it up with verse 12. Beloved, actually, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Put it this way. It is not strange for a Christian to be tried in their faith. It is not strange. Something that is not strange is normal. It is expected. To be a Christian is to expect suffering. It is not strange. Actually, the opposite of being surprised, being dismayed by this suffering is found in verse 13. Instead of being surprised, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So don't just not be surprised. You should positively rejoice. To suffer as a witness to the suffering Savior is an honor for the Christian. Our Christian lives, according to Peter, are not to be lived to avoid as much pain as possible, but to bring Christ as much glory as possible, regardless of the pain that brings. Rejoice, he says. To suffer because we are bringing him glory is an honor. And he says, this joy is an indicator of our ultimate joy and rejoicing when his glory is revealed. In other words, there is a connection between the joy you have of a suffering service for Christ and the joy you will have when his glory is revealed. If you want to rejoice when Christ's glory is revealed, then you should rejoice at the honor of suffering for Christ. Tom Schreiner puts it this way, rejoicing in their present suffering is mandated precisely so that believers will have joy in God's presence at the day of judgment. How believers respond to suffering, in other words, is an indication of whether they truly belong to God at all. In other words, if if you do not have an underlying joy at suffering for the cause of the gospel, suffering that comes about because of obedience to Christ, not that you enjoy the suffering per se, but you rejoice at the honor of suffering because you are a Christian, that indicates that you are one of those who will rejoice when Christ returns because you have demonstrated in your life that you have more joy in him than you do in earthly comforts. Eternal assurance is revealed in earthly endurance through suffering. Suffering with joy is an indicator of our eternal assurance. Rather than viewing suffering for Christ as a curse or as a punishment or as a negative, they are to view it as a blessing. Look at verse 14. He says, if you are insulted... For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the almost a paraphrase of Christ's word himself. Blessed are you when people say all kinds of negative things about you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. If you suffer because you are a Christian... 
you are not being punished. You are not experiencing God's anger. You are not experiencing God's displeasure at you. You are experiencing honor and blessing because that very experience of suffering, insult for the name of Christ, reveals the spirit of glory and of God himself rests upon you. Only those who are indwelt by the spirit of God are willing to live for Christ even above the comforts and popularity of this age. It reveals something of value that is of eternal value. That's why I would caption this whole category our joy in suffering our joy in suffering for Christ is one of the key ways we know we belong to Christ how do you know if the spirit of God is actually in you how do you know if God has pleasure in you as one of his chosen children how do you know if you have been reconciled to God in Christ how do you know if you will have joy on that final day well one way you know is how you respond when the path of obedience leads through pain It is not that you enjoy the pain itself, but you do enjoy the honor of experiencing pain in the path of obedience to Christ. For God's, from God's perspective, to be willingly insulted for his son is a blessing and honor and a sure sign of his presence. Our joy in suffering for Christ now is an advance, an advance on our joy at his return then. Now, Peter does not want anyone to misunderstand. Notice he says in verse 16, he, he clarifies, or verse 15 rather, he clarifies that we are not to dishonor Christ by suffering for wickedness. So we're not to be surprised by suffering. We're to rejoice at suffering for Christ. But we're not to confuse any kind of suffering as suffering for Christ. Look at what he says here. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Tom Schreiner again puts it this way. Not all suffering qualifies one for God's blessing and joy. For human beings also suffer when they do what is evil. Peter knew how easily people can rationalize punishments that are deserved and explain them as Christian suffering. Now, this is an important discerning point. If a Christian is obnoxious and they suffer for that reason, they are not receiving honor from the Lord. If a Christian is punished by the state for illegal acts like murder and theft and other evil doing, they are not receiving honor from the Lord by being incarcerated. Christians do not have some kind of holistic right to honor in any kind of suffering, even that suffering brought about by their own misbehavior. This is a a very important moment even right now. Because it is possible for Christians to assign eternal suffering value even when the suffering comes about because of their own, notice that word, meddling. The best guess of the translation of that word means one who is a busybody who involves themselves in the affairs of others without cause. 
Listen, so if you involve yourself in the affairs of others without cause, with some kind of presumption and gossip and slander, and you instigate some kind of offensive behavior, and a person is offended at you and treats you accordingly, you cannot count that as suffering for Christ. And there will be no honor given to the Christian who does that on that day. Peter's been very clear. Christians are not meant to be social revolutionaries. They give due respect to the government. They give due respect to social order. They have no intention of overcoming this world by force. They are not a a social disruption factor from a a, a physical standpoint. And when they are, when they are a murderer or an evildoer or a meddler, then they cannot count that as honor from God. So he says, don't you dishonor Christ by suffering for wickedness. But in contrast, the final command here, if you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. In other words, if you embezzle something from your work and you get fired, you're not suffering as a Christian. But if you choose in a necessary conversation to bear witness to the fact that you believe in God and you honor his law and integrity and you will not follow unjust work practices and you are fired, well, for that reason, you will be honored. You are blessed for not being ashamed of the name that you bear. If, if you indulge in illegal rioting, and you are, are doing violence to property or persons because you want to see a certain political outcome. Well, no, you cannot ascribe honor to that as if God is eager to see the Christians rule the world with the sword. But if a person comes to you and demands or insists that you, you violate your conscience and insist that in order to serve society, you must bypass some biblical value or conviction, and you say no, and you suffer social consequences, well then God himself counts that as you not being ashamed of his son. Don't be ashamed of Christ in suffering. I can only imagine, this is Peter writing this, I can only imagine that Peter is remembering that moment in the courtyard of the high priest And those people asked him, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he said, I do not know the man. The gospel writer records that he went out and wept bitterly. You can imagine him again like a wise father coming to his spiritual children and saying, don't, let me me help you. Learn from my example. I give anything to go back and answer differently. Yes, I know that man. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And if that means I have to go to the cross too, I gladly will go. Peter was rebuked for using the sword to try to conquer those who were taking Jesus to the cross, but he was convicted for being unwilling to go to the cross himself. Do not be ashamed, Peter says. You can, you can almost feel, can't you feel the, 
the pang in his heart as he says that? Son, daughter, don't be ashamed. It strikes me in this particular era of history that there are certain moral <laughs> platforms in our country or in our culture, in Western culture or general, where the morality of the culture lines up with the morality of the Bible. You might think of certain types of slave trade that still go on today, where the, the outrage of the Bible lines up with the outrage of the culture. But there are other moral categories where the culture is offended at the biblical stance. You might think of a definition of marriage, for example, or certain ways in which we raise our children according to the scriptures. Believing that Jesus is the only way of salvation and that hell is a real place that is reserved for those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It is concerning, I think, when any of us are loud and bold in the areas that the culture currently agrees with and quiet and timid in the areas that the culture is offended by. So when the culture is outraged at a particular immorality, the Christians are right there screaming as well for justice and righteousness. But when the culture is offended and out of line with the scripture, the, 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 the Christian is quiet and speaking a lot about the importance of not being self-righteous. Listen, Peter is saying, don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed of his word. Don't be ashamed to stand for him. Don't be ashamed to stand for him, whether it is your particular group, your particular culture, your particular party that will disown you if you stand for this biblical truth. Don't be ashamed of him. And don't suffer as an evildoer, as an instigator, as a meddler, as an obnoxious citizen. No, don't suffer for those reasons. But if you are suffering because you are standing for Christ, do not be ashamed of him. Expect this kind of suffering, and when you experience it, count it a blessing. Don't suffer for dishonoring Christ, but instead, do not be ashamed of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, are we prepared to suffer on the path of obedience? Peter tells us not to be surprised at a fiery trial, which certainly can and has included intense persecution, life-altering, life-destroying persecution. But, but let's ask a more realistic question right now. How are we doing even with the small increase of heat that comes with certain acts of obedience? When we feel pressure, do we shy away from obedience? When the heat increases, are we less bold, less eager, quick to explain why we shouldn't have to obey in this particular way or be bold in this particular way? I was thinking about this and, and I was remembering a time when I was 13 or 14 years old and some friends of mine were over at the house and we were playing basketball on the front street and my little brother was there who was seven years younger than me. At some point, the game paused, and my brother became the target of some kind of teasing or belittling from the older boys, pointing out his, his age or his inability or something. It was a perfect moment for a big brother to step in. 
But I was too concerned about getting on with the game and probably about avoiding offending my friends. And so I did nothing. Later, the grief of failing my little brother hit me deeply. I saw that moment suddenly from a different perspective. It deeply saddened me. Such a small amount of heat. Such a small cost. But I backed away as from a flame. I'd rather hold my preferences and my popularity than offer them to the heat of suffering. Let's consider where are the small chances to stand up for Christ, to rejoice if it should cause suffering? Where are the small chances in your life? And are you backing away from them? Are you explaining them away? You know, legalism is a, a terrible thing in the Bible to trust our own righteousness or to, to ask people to do things that are not present in the Scripture. But legalism is sometimes an excuse for lazy obedience. Well, I don't want to be legalistic. Translated, I don't want to suffer. God doesn't ask us to suffer in obedience. And deep down in your soul, you know that this is an opportunity to serve the Lord with joy, even if it costs me something. What is something that you have in your life that if you were to obey with greater boldness or be unashamed of Christ with greater courage, it would be burned away by some kind of heat. You would risk the loss of it. Think about that in terms of your everyday life. Is it standing for Christ in your home, in your marriage, where you will risk a level of Harley that has existed for a while? Is it standing for Christ with your children where you, you risk their reaction and outrage? Is it standing for Christ in some family relationship where you risk their accusation and their disapproval? Is it, is it standing for Christ with, with a group of friends who are, who are mostly godly but have one area of their life where they indulge sin? Listen, we're not to shy away from suffering on the path of obedience. It, it may be that like our ancestors, someone comes banging at our door, points a gun at our head and says, do you believe in Jesus, yes or no? But it may also be that there's little fires on the path of obedience that would burn away the dross of our, our worldly thinking, our idols of comfort and popularity. And, and we would rather skirt around to the side, hold on to those idols and not have to go through the flame. 
It hurts to lose idols. We're attached to them. But, but, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would remind us, to endure the cross is not tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. To endure the cross is not tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. If our goal is to avoid as much suffering as possible, we will avoid opportunities to stand up for Christ if they will turn up the heat in our lives. But to run from suffering is to miss the priority of a crucial test that God is using for our good. And that's this next verse, which I will label our test in suffering. Our test in suffering. Look at verse 17. For, Peter says, he's given all these commands about not being surprised and rejoicing in suffering and not suffering because you're an evildoer and not being ashamed. And here he gives why. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And remember, Peter refers to the church as a, a living temple, a temple that is being built one person at a time. And so to that household, God comes with a type of judgment, a judgment that is actually connected to his ultimate eschatological judgment. It is as if the judgment of God begins in this age and it comes to his church not to condemn, but to purge them of their remaining worldliness and to expose them as those who have dedicated themselves exclusively to Jesus Christ. That end time evaluation begins even in the suffering of this life. And the opening wave of that suffering is the purifying fiery test of God's church. Tom Schreiner says it this way, the judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God and that purification comes through suffering, making believers morally fit for their inheritance. The judgment here is the final judgment, but this judgment begins even now in the present evil age. Now it is that suffering that strips us of our idols in this world. It is a fire that does not destroy us, but it does consume the dross that is present in our lives, showing us to be those who are prepared for eternity. Peter's point is that however difficult suffering may be, it is a gift to us because it is a necessary prelude to our final salvation. Notice the quote here where Peter says, if the righteous is scarcely, or that word might be, with difficulty saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he's comparing here from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if it is necessary for Christians to experience a purifying effect of suffering in order for them to be what God intends for them to be before they die or before his return, then how much worse will it be for those who reject Jesus Christ when they face the judgment of God? Listen, in Peter's mind, the suffering, however horrific, that Christians face is small in comparison to the suffering that unbelievers will face when they face God without Christ as their mediator. 
Ironically, Peter would say, listen, when you experience suffering, what should come to your mind is how small this is. How small this is in comparison to what it would have been if I was one of those who rejected Jesus. You're not to think how strange this is, but how small this is. Not how brutal this is, but how little this is in comparison to what I deserve and what those around me will face in the end. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He pictures this this fiery wave of judgment coming first to his house. And there in that house are those protected by the finished work of Jesus. And yet because they are still in their worldly bodies and their worldly flesh still exercising, they need to be purified by that suffering. And that wave of his judgment begins there, purifies his church, but it ultimately rolls forward to consume a world that has rejected Christ. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, in other words, saved through difficulty, saved through suffering, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner who have no Christ and only draws? If a person is only draws, there is nothing left when they face the fire of God's judgment. They will be consumed in that fire eternally. The Bible doesn't flatter those who have rejected Jesus Christ. It tells them the truth. It tells them the truth. It tells you the truth. If you do not believe in Jesus, it tells you the truth. It doesn't flatter you. It doesn't pat you on the head and say, all ways lead to God. It tells you the truth. There is a holy God who hates sin, who has been rejected by people that he made in his image, and his judgment on that sin is coming. It is unsurvivable. It is eternal. And there is not a human being who can stand in that fire except those who are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so if you are not a believer, whether you grew up in a Christian home, whether you've heard Christian Bible stories, whether you are nicer than your neighbor is irrelevant because God's judgment will consume all of those who don't believe in Jesus as their Savior. So the Christian, when he is suffering on the path of obedience, has good reason to rejoice because he remembers this flame does not condemn. It does not condemn me because it condemned Christ for me. Peter would say, with every ounce of compassion in his soul, are you telling me that you have to live in a smaller home because ungodly work practices made you lose your job? But you have a home in the heavens. And to be cleansed from the love of this world, if that's God's purpose for your life, is a reason for joy and honor. Are you saying that you have to risk the rage of a spouse or a child because you stand for Christ and call them to repentance? Yes, but Christ left his home in heaven to rescue you and has adopted you into his very own family. And so to have to lose relationships and standing for him is an honor in the household of God. 
Are you one that has to stand up for an unpopular biblical value on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media you use, knowing that there are those who will pile on you and denounce you as offensive in this culture? But isn't that a joy compared to knowing that the judgment of God would have been heaped on you if you had rejected him? Listen, we tend to think of life as an obstacle course where we avoid suffering as much as we can and at all costs. But the Bible calls us to love Jesus and to serve him regardless of cost and even counting cost that is necessary as an honor because we're serving the one who died in our place. The the judgment, the assessment of God is coming to reveal those who are his and to expose those who are not. It began at the cross of Christ and it rolls forward through this end of the ages until the final judgment trumpet sounds. It begins with the household of God. But in the end, in the end, it will conclude with the condemnation of those who reject Jesus Christ. It is a different view of suffering for the Christian life. Randy Alcorn says it this way. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. If we run from the suffering that comes from standing for Christ. We are running from the very judgment that demonstrates that we do not await the judgment that is to come. This is our test in suffering. The test of suffering, revealing those whose treasure is Jesus. So, What is the summation, Peter might say? What's the conclusion? Section three, our trust through suffering. Look how he concludes. Therefore, therefore, says the wise father. He's taken us to school. He's taken us to class. Yes, it is going to be difficult. It is a painful labor you are about to embark on. But there is something glorious that will result. Therefore, what do you do? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, in light of how God uses suffering, in light of the fact that it begins his final assessment with us, in light of the fact that it is an indicator of our eternal joy to come, in light of all of those truths, therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter reminds us that no suffering comes to the believer except by the will of their heavenly Father. You will not suffer more than he counts necessary for you. And it is not an accident that he uses this phrase to entrust ourselves, to entrust our soul to a faithful creator. To entrust ourselves to God is exactly what Christ did. 
He entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself to his Father. Into your hands, he declared from the cross, I commit my spirit. And we walk in his footsteps, gladly entrusting ourselves to the will of our Heavenly Father as well. The Christian has a motto over their life. Not my will, but yours be done. Of course, we pray for relief from suffering. We pray for mercy in the minimization of suffering. We pray for protection from evildoers and the thwarting of evil plans. But ultimately, having prayed our prayers in intercession, we say to our Father, as Jesus said to his, not my will, but yours be done. Because whatever opponents come against us, it will not be the opponent that faced Christ. Christ faced God himself. However frightening an opponent is that faces us, the end of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of life, the disapproval of society, government action coming against us, they are nothing compared to what Christ faced in the garden that day where he said, not my will but yours. He knew that will was that God himself should crush him and bring him to grief. And so when Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator, he is bringing to mind, remember that your creator was crushed in your place. Remember Remember that he surrendered to the will of God to save you. Remember that he died bearing your sins. Remember that he faced the opposition of God himself. So when you suffer, you can certainly entrust your soul to him. Like Christ, we are not to rage against the suffering that God has selected for us. Like Christ, we should not live in bitterness and resentment or demand that our will and not his be done. Like Christ, we can surrender our lives and our comfort to the one who knows our needs and our capacity and our pains and our sorrows. And we can say to him, not my will, but yours be done. The surrender of Christ to suffering to save us should cause us to surrender to any suffering to serve him. Are you expecting to suffer with joy? Are you prepared to trust yourself to the will of God for any suffering that comes in the path of obedience to Christ? Are you willing to take bold action of mission or obedience even if it will produce pain and loss in your life? Will you embrace online scorn that comes because you stand for Christ? Peter, the wise fisherman, nearing the end of his journey, who, if church tradition is right, would die a martyr's death, 
and as the tradition goes, insisted that he be crucified upside down because he said to do it any other way would be to dishonor Christ himself. That fisherman, who is now in glory, comes to you, comes to me, in the middle of my basketball game, in the middle of my work day, in the middle of my relationship with my child or my aunt or my grandmother or my neighbor. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. It's coming to test you. It's coming to test you. But if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The spirit of glory and of God himself rests upon you. It is time now for judgment to begin with the household of God. To assess us. To purify us. To reveal the true and the old about us. And when that happens, we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Charles Spurgeon said an hour with Jesus will make up for a lifetime of persecution. One smile from him will repay us a thousand times over for all disappointments and discouragements. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as the one who died in our place and we thank you for suffering for our sins. We pray, Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, would give us courage and boldness to embrace those little moments of heat that are opportunities to serve you with suffering. When through fiery trials our pathway shall lie, your grace, all sufficient, shall be our reply. Let's stand and sing together.